This is a diet of Brussels. After a bit of a summer hiatus, we're back uh, on track with some new episodes. And the first one that I want to bring you is an interview that I recorded on Wednesday the 6th of September with Katie Hayward and David Finnamore of Queen's University Belfast. Uh, we recorded it in the uh, departure lounge of uh, Krakow Airport after a conference, so uh, you'll have to excuse the uh, uh, occasional interruptions of uh, airport announcements. But uh, we're talking about Northern Ireland um, and the uh, kind of insights that they can bring. So sit back and enjoy the discussion. So we've got Katie Hayward <laughs> and David Finnamore from uh, Queen's. Um, and uh, the reason for doing this is because you're both available and uh, we've all got flights to wait for. Um, but also because you're both very much more invested in the discussion of the Northern Irish border issue in relation to Brexit. And one of the things that I always keep on saying in these kind of podcasts and when I'm writing my uh, blogs is that it's complicated and it's difficult, but I'd like to unpack it a bit more for, for listeners. So what we've talked about is you know, trying to unpack what you see as the key elements uh, and then trying to think a bit about ways that this might be addressed, about possible solutions, way, you know, ways forward as much as you see them. So uh, who wants to go, who wants to explain it to me? Uh, Katie? If we begin with what the EU itself has said in its negotiating directives, and that is uh, that there are unique circumstances on the island of Ireland, and that relates to primarily the peace process. And peace process is all about the border, essentially. So it's seen as an EU success story because it represents a lot of what the EU is about, and that is about better relations between states and about proper cross-border cooperation that really means something, and which changes the way that people view each other and manage to work together. So the worry is that if the Irish border becomes an external frontier of the European Union, that that immediately puts a very real barrier, whether it's visible or not is another matter, but a very real barrier between the UK and Ireland. Mm. And that symbolically, let alone everything else, that's a problem for the peace process. Uh, and just kind of thinking about, you know, how, what's the, the hierarchy between sort of EU requirements, Good Friday Agreement requirements, UK requirements, common travel area. You know, I, all these elements I see are there, but is, does anyone have a hierarchy? Is it that, you know, something that is absolutely accepted by everyone? I would have thought that for many nationalists, the Good Friday Agreement is top of the list. Um, if you're talking to many unionists, it probably isn't as high up for them. Um, I think for them what's far more important is the constitutional link with the United Kingdom and ensuring that anything you might do in the context of Brexit does not undermine that union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, that's of paramount importance for them. It goes into issues of identity as well. Um, I think there's also, both sides would, would really welcome the continuation of the common travel area. Um, and then I think if you get down to sort of more economic issues, it depends where you are geographically, because I think the other, one of the other dimensions of the Northern Ireland issue is the way in which its economy is heavily integrated in certain sectors, 
with the, with the Republic of Ireland. Mm. Um, and so for many farmers, they're part of integrated supply chains which are crossing the border. Um, in other areas, particularly in, in the wider food industry and, and drink industry, um, you've got goods moving up and down the island as part of the, the production process and the dissemination process. We've also got an integrated electricity market. Um, and the whole idea of Brexit threatens to disrupt all the trade flows and levels of economic and service integration that you've got around that. So we've got a, a kind of a nexus of economic and political uh, constitutional and constitutional elements together. And also, again, this kind of sense that there's a lot of symbolic weight in things, that it's not just how mm-hmm. things are, it's how things are seen to be that mm-hmm. seems to be part of the issue. Yes, but we shouldn't get too preoccupied with that. So the the focus on the visibility of the border is a slight distraction in some ways, Mm -hmm. because the best way to think of the situation in Northern Ireland is as a nexus between uh, Britain and Ireland. So it's where different cultures and um, histories literally intermingle. And, and of course different economies as well over time they've become very closely integrated so the focus on the border is all well and good and, and it relates to customs and all those kind of um, procedures of a line between states but actually the reason why it's so complicated in Northern Ireland is because it's, it's a sort of, it's not a melting pot but it's a nexus of these two um, countries um, so that's why when we're trying to, trying to deal with it you have those different um, competing visions about what post-Brexit Northern Ireland should look like and the anxieties there. There are two questions. The first one, I guess, is about visions, which is who has a vision? Because I know people have lots of different things they say, but does anyone have a clear vision of what they want? Or is it is it just kind of mainly things I don't want? You know, is, is there a constructive vision from any party and, and what is it? Not really. I, I think that what we've seen over the last year since, since the referendum is just major concerns being raised about the challenges that Brexit poses and the uncertainty it poses. We've not really had much of a debate going on about, okay, what do you see as the future after that? How do you mitigate some of the, 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 the challenges which are there? And that's been hampered by the fact that you've got political divisions and we've got a whole series of other political issues going on in Northern Ireland, um, the absence of an executive for much of, much of that, that time. And I also think an, an absence of a, a push coming from London for Northern Ireland to actually define what its position is and think about mechanisms whereby you can bring different sectors of society together to create a sense of the Northern Ireland vision in the absence of, of, of political leadership um, locally. I think whether you probably do get a, a broad consensus is on trying to maintain as much of the status quo as possible to avoid the disruption which could come from a hard Brexit. In a, in a transitionary way or in a, in a, in a, in a, in a permanent term, way? In a permanent way. Yes, because I, th- I think uh, most people recognise that any change is going to be disruptive. Um, and some changes could be even more disruptive than others. So if, if, for example, the UK is out of the customs and you don't find a flexible, uh, imaginative way to address that, you've got to have the customs controls between North and South. Um, and OK, only 20% of trade is North-South on the island, but that is still a significant amount of trade, particularly for those small traders in, in, in the border region, and they're going to be disproportionately affected. You also have the sort of reversal of the economic progress which we've seen in the border area over the last 20 years. 
um, and then that just feeds into um, social and political art. Um, I wouldn't say unrest isn't necessarily, but it, 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 it raises enormous concerns and, and brings about tensions, which we've seen dissipated over the last number of years. And the European Union has been vital for that. So it's been the context in which you can have normal cross-border relations without them being politicised or seen as leading towards a united Ireland. So acting as an, uh, an honest broker, or as a, as not, no. not as a broker, but as a space in which... Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's not one side or the other, it's just a, a, a different context. Yeah. And it's and it's t- taking away the barriers, so people just become more used to crossing the border for work and for study and for trade, etc. So it, it, this is part of the complication now and trying to say well what's it going to be like after Brexit how do we protect what's already what what we've got is because people are then trying to think well actually what has the European Union meant for us and how important has it been uh, for this normalization of these cross-border relations and it's actually quite difficult to pinpoint that. I think if we go go back to the referendum campaign and and even the last year since the the referendum that understanding of the, the, the EU's role in providing that context in which so much could happen positive in terms of the peace process simply has not been understood. Um, Which, as a consequence, um, we've still got that underdeveloped debate on on, on the the ways forward. The the second question I had really uh, about the border was, what what, what do you need a border for? Why, you know, know, so there's a border, but what does it, what could it consist of? does it need, you know, what was essential, what's not essential? So if you're talking about, so it's interesting if you talk to people in the Irish border region about their concerns regarding Brexit, a lot of them immediately think of border checkpoints as being places that you associate with fear and intimidation. And a lot of that in their mind immediately goes to security checks and to checks on ID and checks as to why people are crossing the border in the first place. So that sort of explains quite a bit of why there's concern about having any manifestation of the border, uh, because people know what it is to have a land border and a seriously hard land border. Um, And all the disruption that's caused um, and that we're still suffering the legacy of. Um, So you could have the necessity for border checks for ID, so for passport controls, as, as we're sitting beside a passport um, control area, um, to check to see are people able to come in or not. And we've been quite reassured, I think, in the recognition of the common travel area by the EU and the willingness to allow those bilateral arrangements to continue. Um, so that seems all well and good, and the UK has said it's still okay for EEA citizens to this invisible border for you. Of course the other reason you'd have a border is to draw the line for, for goods, so what's allowed to freely access the market and, and what isn't. And the kind of, uh, it's been interesting to see how willingness the UK government is to be quite um, laissez-faire about this in some ways and to not be clear about why we have customs checks and controls in the first place. And the reason for that, part of it's tariffs and revenue collection, the other half is protecting your citizens and consumers. Um, and so this is why the EU would be concerned that they don't want necessarily chlorinated chicken coming into the EU single market uh, via Northern Ireland. Mm. So checks will have to be taking place if there's a significant divergence in standards. 
I think you've also got the economic dimension that all the um, the time that you could actually spend at, at checks plus the administration around it is just adding costs mm. to a part of the of the UK and part of the Ireland which is not the most economically prosperous. A lot of the businesses run on very, very small margins. Which is why you've had that development of cross-border yeah. supply chains. Yeah. And it's, it's, just it's like, yeah. I think in, in the agricultural yeah. sector, Northern Ireland could not exist as an agricultural market on its own, nor could the Republic, but they put the two together and you see economies of scale developing. And we've seen that manifest in the fact that um, certain um, livestock were reared in the north, slaughtered in the south, and vice versa. Um, and at the moment, that's the only way that you can actually have the production and, and, and the slaughtering process in, in, in place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so we've got, you know, talking about the border is, is part of it. Is there anything else? Because um, one of the things that I was also thinking about is that Ireland, a lot of traffic that goes from Ireland to the rest of the EU might go through uh, the UK, not through Northern Ireland, but uh, through the Welsh ports. Yeah. Uh, other kinds of routes like that. And a lot of goods going from Northern Ireland will go down to Dublin and then across mm-hmm. to, to the Welsh ports. Um, yes, I think there's, there's concerns, obviously, if you're going to have some sort of customs control there um, for goods which are perishable um, and the extent to which a day added to the journey of a haulier could actually prove disastrous for them. Even a few hours in yeah. some cases, yeah. So, I know I'm assuming that you know one possibility is that in that in the case of sort of the the Irish Sea aspect, you could do checking on a ferry whilst it's crossing the Irish Sea. Theoretically, I don't know. Am I sounding like uh, uh, a government minister who's saying we can just do it with technology, with well, apps? Yeah. We have an app for it. <laughs> I, think I, I don't. Is that a discussion? I, the te- the technology argument pro- was yeah. one that's been there. Yeah. Is, 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 is that's what they need permission to get on the ferry to begin with. Yeah. So you could get approval. A lot of it happens electronically now, anyway. Um, if you want them to inspect, that's a different matter, and that has to that physically is very difficult to carry out uh, on, a, on a ferry. Mm. Um, if you think about what the containers are like that are on the There's ferries, the no, you need yeah. specially designed um, places. And there are certain ports that have that capacity, um, but the, the space needed for that, if you consider the scale that's going to be increased if you're including um, goods between the UK and Ireland, is just enormous. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so nobody's going for it. Well, it's, it's, it's problematic. Well, it's highly problematic because if the UK withdraws from the customs union, you've got to have the customs controls at some point. Mm. Yes. And you've essentially got this, this choice of it's either in the Irish Sea or it's at the, the, the land border on, on the island. Mm. Um, both have problems. Mm. Um, and ev- even if you were to put it on the land border, you've still got to then think, is the infrastructure there to be able to manage it? And Pagney it isn't. We've got one dual carriageway going north-south. And if you look at the, sort of the sort of Swedish-Norwegian border, you have sort of three or four lanes crossing um, so that you can actually have a fast track and you can have um, places where you can pull, pull lorries apart. In most instances, the, what the two, three hundred various border crossings are single carriage or, or, or standard roads. Um, you then got to think about what infrastructure you need to put in so that you can actually put the checks in, in place. Um, do you do it on all of them? Do you just do it on a select number? If you do it on a select number, how do you control those individuals who are, and check those individuals who aren't using those, those posts? 
and I think one of the things that's evident is that nothing's happening at the moment. So mm-hmm. just thinking about the kind of the no deal scenario that we get to March 2019 and the, there's no deal, if we can imagine such a situation, that the, the infrastructure development that would be necessary to cope with the sudden imposition of those requirements it, it, it can't be done overnight no. or anything, or even no. over a year. You know, it's, it's must, there must be a question, year. even if you were to decide in the next couple of weeks exactly what trade regime you're going to have, and the customs border had to be on, on, on the island, whether the infrastructure would be in place by March 2019 to actually implement it mm-hmm. is a very much an open question. There's also the cost of it. Um, and then you've got to have the personnel, and it's all. If we're talking about doing stuff electronically or online, the computer systems in place, the various um, access that different businesses will need to have, the um, knowledge and know-how as to how to operate a system which still is yet to be designed, um, yeah. or indeed commissioned, or indeed commissioned, uh, yeah, or procured under EU procurement rules, presumably. Uh, <laughs> um, so okay, so. Is there anything else that we, we haven't talked about in terms of... I think let's get back, yeah, uh, if you yeah, don't mind, well, if we go back to the agreement. Because that is, you talk about visions and how clear are we. So we are clear that the Good Friday Agreement can't be affected. Barnier said it, it, can't, it can, should be unaffected by Brexit, which is a very clear statement. Theresa May has said it shouldn't be jeopardised and the position maybe shouldn't be undermined by... But say it shouldn't even be affected by Brexit is a very strong statement to make. Mm. So we're looking now to think, well, what does that mean? And uh, you can look at it in very simplistic terms and say, well, where does a Good Friday Agreement mention the European Union? And it's important that the declaration of support that came from Britain and Ireland said we do so as partners, friendly neighbours and partners in the European Union, um, because that reflects the context, that partnership, which put them on the same trajectory to the same place. So um, wherever that place might be, but essentially they're going in the same direction, so you have that um, harmonisation between the two jurisdictions. Um, now they're on different trajectories, and this means it's, it is difficult now to, to think about how um, how the Good Friday Agreement can be sustained in spirit as well as in principle um, after Brexit. So we're working at three levels here. So you've got the, the British-Irish relationship, which needs to be secured, and this is an interesting question for the, for the European Union, how much will it allow that bilateral um, relationship to develop and to be sustained in tangible, meaningful ways. Um, there's a little bit of tension there. Um, and then, of course, you've got the North-South dimension, which is so important for, for nationalists. And then within Northern Ireland, um, and it's it was absolutely striking how the day after the referendum, you had the language right back up there on very clear, strong nationalist, Irish nationalist, British nationalist rhetoric that pulled unionism and nationalism further apart. And that was going to be one of my other questions is, you know, that we, we, we hear people, everyone doesn't want to go back to the time of the Troubles, the open conflict that we had. Are we, are we still in that situation? Because we did have some of that rhetoric if not the action, but are we still up at that kind of level? Or is it is uh, all sides anxious that they might end up going back into that situation? How real a threat is it, and, and how close are we to it at this point? I don't see it as an immediate threat. Um, a lot of it depends on how the process is managed, and I suppose at two levels. One, in terms of 
how do you maintain as much of the status quo as possible um, and ensure that there's as minimal disruption as possible. I think the other level is making sure that whatever solutions come out of this process are effectively owned by parties in Northern Ireland, that they're part of the process. Um, otherwise you would find yourself in a position where there's an, almost an externally imposed set of arrangements which, uh, into which there's very little buy-in. And then that undermines faith in, in the institutions. Um, and to date, I think there's opportunities to engage in the process, but the structures aren't sufficiently developed such that there's a clear sense that whatever's, going to, whatever's being represented in, in the negotiations really reflects what people think in Northern Ireland. So is that because the British government is primarily concerned with a British, you know, with Brexit, or is it because it hasn't sufficiently, hasn't got engagement from parties in its consultations or engagements? In I don't think the structures have necessarily been there to facilitate engagement beyond a very small group of individuals and parties based in, in Westminster. Um, there, the Joint Ministerial Committee structure just hasn't provided the space to really engage um, any of the devolved ad administrations. Um, also, we've, it's been very, very hurriedly put together, it's generally viewed as quite shambolic um, um, and so as a, as a consequence no one's really think planned as to how you engage. I'd also say that, that one often gets the impression that Whitehall doesn't always realise there are devolved administrations with powers and responsibilities and I think we see that also in the way in which the, the withdrawal bill has been put together and the lip service which has been paid to the devolution arrangements that, that exist. Mm. And I think it's not just the, the Brexit process and, and the nature of the relationship which is established between the UK and the EU which is, is problematic, it's also the manner in which um, the UK is repatriating powers and holding so many of those in Westminster um, and not devolving them when certainly in, in the Welsh and uh, Scottish context they believe rightfully they should be theirs. Yes. Uh, we've got the problem in Northern Ireland that no one's really speaking out on <laughs> what should be happening. And this is maybe another part of it, how much is it the absence of an executive, uh, an additional problem, and how much is the the supply and uh, competence and supply arrangement of DUP with the Conservative government in Westminster mm. a complication? And do, do, do these play a big role? Well, I mean, there is a certain irony if you have um, all EU 27 saying the Good Friday Agreement is core to this, we want to sustain the peace process, and then they say, well, let's have a look at what's going on in Northern Ireland right now, and they're at each other's throats in political terms, or at least sort of actually not even close enough to be at each other's throats because they're not talking to each other. So um, there's a problem there, and certainly the, the, the closer ties there are between the DUP and, and the Tory party, uh, the diminishing trust there is between the DUP and Sinn Féin. Um, and I do, in addition to David's comments, I do think it's deeply concerning that Theresa May and her government don't seem to um, uh, publicly acknowledge and appreciate the importance of the Irish dimension for Northern Ireland. So for Minister Coveney to be speaking out and saying that direct rule would not be good for the future of Northern Ireland isn't interference by a foreign power. We decided that in 1985 with the Anglo-Irish Agreement. You know, Ireland has um, a constitutional. Has, it has a constitutional role. right to be, you know, and it's actually institutionalised that relationship and that um, involvement 
in, in policy making and um, coordination in Northern Ireland. So we, we fixed that 30 odd years ago. So to be at that level of um, uh, disagreement between Brit the British and Irish governments is deeply concerning, I think. Um, and this is part of the unraveling or potential unraveling of um, the principles of the agreement that we're seeing now through Brexit, um, which is possibly not surprising um, given that Ireland and Britain are on opposite sides of the table at this critical time. But also clearly not helpful to finding a solution in a sustainable way. Yeah. Talking about sustainable solutions, at the moment it feels like we're talking about are there any solutions? But uh, yeah, because uh, yeah. we haven't talked much about the Irish government and mm. the Republic, it's been very successful in getting this issue put at the front of the negotiations. It's been a lot of time in uh, lobbying other member states, European institutions, got a lot of buy-in uh, from people. Mm -hmm. uh, how, in, how is that something that you see them continuing to to do? That you know that they're going to be at the forefront of shaping this agenda. You know, are they the, are they the critical member state in this issue, or are there other states out there who say, well, let's not get too hung up on this because we need to actually think about the broader relationship. This is another reason why the lack of having an executive up and running is a problem, because Ireland is is doing a very good job in keeping Northern Ireland on the agenda uh, and the Irish border on the agenda for the EU as a focus. That has been important, but um, it should have been in some way, it should have been the, the British government ensuring that that was there, recognising the importance of the peace process um, and of course a, a Northern Ireland executive being able to make that point. Um, so. <laughs> I think in terms of the support which exists for the Irish position, it's quite impressively strong at the moment. If you look at the statements which have been coming out from Barnier you and, and Juncker, the Hofstadt, Tusk, the European Parliament more generally, um, they're very, very strong indeed. And if we look at the... the it's, I think it's also to note that the paragraph in the, in the guidelines for the negotiations was obviously adopted at, at 27 and people continue to point to it. That's the basis for, for moving forward. I suppose the question to be asked is how long can that be sustained? Uh, at the moment it does seem genuinely strong and there's a genuine interest to sort of try and think through how you can address, address the issues. But um, at some point in the, in the negotiations, probably on the future relationship as opposed to the, the exit, um, one could see more uh, commercial interest coming to the fore where you would probably see some divisions coming on, on the EU27 side and then how, to what extent can, can Ireland continue to maintain the high profile of, of the Irish border issue um, in, in that context. Um, it's gone very well so far. But, uh, and I think part of the issue is that the, 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 the EU see the Good Friday Agreement largely as a sort of cultural, political, social um, um, success story actually it's also economic success story too so being able to conceive of an all-island economy unionists being able to buy into that and see the the value of that and um, that close economic integration that you have across these islands um, is will be put at risk by by brexit and, and that's when you will see tensions then in, in the negotiations because Ireland is vulnerable it is exposed and um, uh, that's going to become increasingly apparent I think I see that uh, our gates are now announced, so uh, <laughs> I'd like to move to kind of, uh, so yes. the closing part, which is where we started at the beginning, you know, thinking about ways forward solutions. 
DC solutions. Uh, oh yeah. Oh no problem. Have yeah. You got solutions. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone yeah. I've got solutions. I'm, I'm very. I never meet people who have solutions. I have people who've got problems. Uh, yeah. the, the extent to which you need is the type of solutions you need will ultimately depend on the nature of the UK EU relationship. So, for example, if the UK were to stay in the European Economic Area, were to stay in the Customs Union, you reduce significantly the challenges that need to be addressed. The problem is if it comes out of both of those. Um, okay, one idea we, we've put forward on, the, on the, the single market area, so that you can maintain as much of the status quo as possible, is to keep Northern Ireland in the European Economic Area, so that it, you still can then maintain the freedom, the good service capital and people on the island. Um, and you can minimise disruption. There would still need to be controls at the border, but the extent of issues you'd be controlling for is reduced significantly. Um, I think there's ways in which you can envisage um, if the UK doesn't buy into various EU programmes, whether that be say structural funds, whether that be education programmes, research, could you keep Northern Ireland in, either through some UK-EU relationship which specifically relates to Northern Ireland, or by the EU saying that uh, regulations regarding structural funds apply to the the geographical space of island, the island, um, things like that should not be beyond the bounds of the, of, of the possible. I think what's important is to find political solutions or political ways forward and then give it to the lawyers to work out how you can actually do that. Um, I think the history of the EU obviously shows that it's a problem-solving entity and has been quite creative in the past has often sometimes fudged things at the edges. Um, and I think Northern Ireland is on one of those edges which where there may be a willingness to sort of, yeah, fudge things a little bit in some areas. We'll let the, the man finish his, uh, his, his announcement. Um, and certainly the, the law seems to follow the politics in, in the European context mm. in, in pretty much every case. I, 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 can, I can very much see that. Mm. Uh, the question is, you know, where's the, you know, the politics does somebody need to change what they want? Does, does somebody need to... hope he doesn't say this in English now. <laughs> I think part of it is, how do you unlock, or how, how do you get the process going? The EU has created a framework for potentially negotiating special, um, not special arrangements, but finding flexible and uh, um, imaginative solutions. Now, there's got to be an ask from the British side. Um, I think there are ideas around, but you've really got to have a buy-in, I think, on the UK side into that language of flexible imaginative solutions for the island of Ireland and, and put some ideas on the table, and then that will get the discussion going about what you can actually do. Um, it also needs, I think, obviously for the British government to clarify what its position for the UK-EU relationship is, is in the future. And going back to my previous point, that determines how much you actually need to think about. Yeah. I do have a point. And the starting point has to be that one nation Toryism isn't going to get us out of Brexit unscathed. Um, and essentially, you have to start with the, idea, the recognition that the UK is a very diverse um, state. And so... Um, differentiated arrangements are the ones that are the only ones that are going to work without causing at all damage to the, its constituent parts and Northern Ireland of course is the best example of differentiation within the UK but of course you have Scotland and Wales as well. Um, Northern Ireland is unique because you do have another member state or another state and um, very close involvement and that has to be that has to be recognised. I think that that's what the European Union is looking for now when it talks about what what, what are you proposing in relation to the border. It's not this idea of um, 
of a, a single um, nation state addressing um, a, a sort of an external frontier with the EU. It's about this border as a connecting point between um, Ireland and Britain. A bridge rather than a wall. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah. A last point then, just uh, if there's one thing that you would like to, or you, you could you would want to see that would help move this forward, because we haven't really had much explicit movement. I think, you know, as I think ideas are coming, bubbling through, but what one thing would you want to see that would really help get towards some kind of solution? Who's going to go first? I'd, I'd say it's a concerted engagement with the language of the, the um, negotiating guidelines to recognise that there's issues here about the peace process, there's issues here about the Good Friday Agreement, common travel area, there's a space to find flexible and imaginative solutions. The language there, I'd say, is unprecedented in terms of the external history of the external relations of the EU. The political will there is, a, is there at the moment, um, and that's got to be seized. Um, by, the, by the British government? By the British government, I think. I think, well, I'd love to see the executive up and running again in Northern Ireland, but from the, possibly more likely, well, maybe not, but I'd love to see the British government properly recognising the diversity within the UK and getting a proper say for Scotland and Wales as well as Northern Ireland in all of this, and I think that would be absolutely critical starting point. Uh, is the JMC the right venue no, for that? No, it's, it's definitely it's not. It's got to be something else. It has been much more substantive and has to allow for... Um, differentiated arrangements after Brexit uh, to recognise the unique needs of Scotland and Northern Ireland in particular, but even various parts of England vis-à-vis -vis Brexit and the future relationship with the EU. Well, thank you both for taking the time. Uh, we're going to get on our respective planes, but <laughs> it's been a real pleasure to talk to both of you. And it's, Thanks very uh, much, Simon. Thanks uh, for your it's interest. It's been really uh, good to kind of unpack this kind of stuff. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks, Simon. Thanks.